All right, as we continue in our study of the book of James, I want to invite you to turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The Lord's brother, the apostle's pastor, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues his assault on nominalism with these words. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one's to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. And we thank you for the, your kingdom. And we thank you for teaching us what we must know to be good citizens of your kingdom. Grant that we would allow our values and behaviors and priorities to be challenged and transformed by your word. That we would live in conformity with your word. That you would get all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, brothers and sisters, we, we summed up chapter 1, or we got to the conclusion of chapter 1 by 
but by noting that in his discussion of traits of true Christian faith, that James was coming out of the gate with, 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 a, with a major thesis that one's devotion to God is not principally found in one's profession, but rather in a life of obedience to God. That the test of a really religious person, someone who is really serious about their faith, is not to principally be found in how often they come through these doors, how much they drop in the offering, so on and so forth, but rather in conformity to the will and the words of the Lord. Obedience. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And as John tells us, this is the love of God, that we obey him. James is, is not afraid, as a, as, as a good pastor, he's not afraid to make us uncomfortable. He's not undermining anything that Paul or the rest of Scripture has said. In fact, I, I, I labored last week to establish that what he's saying there is consistent with the entirety of Scripture, which, which should be self-evident since Scripture has one author, principally the Holy Spirit. But it's important for us to have the transparency and the integrity to allow ourselves to be scrutinized by Scripture, to permit the Holy Spirit to prick our consciences, knowing that in so doing, He is causing us to then be prepared for the sanding that's part of sanctification. So it's good and right that our consciences get pricked by the Holy Spirit through His Word. It's beautiful. And, and today, he continues it. And he brings up the notion, or he brings up the idea of having behaviors and practices that are totally normal within one's cultural context to be utterly found out of line with the values of the kingdom and as such, they must be unlearned and a new set of values learned. Our ethic in the church is grounded in the culture and law of heaven. Not the culture and customs of the time and place in which we find ourselves and that's important. James here says a couple unique, there's a couple unique phrases in this passage that underscore the point that he is making regarding the, the highest authority to which we follow. First, if you look in verse 1, he refers to Jesus. This is really unique. He refers to, to our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Lord of glory. And then, in verse 8, he refers to the commandments as the royal law. What's he doing here? 
Well, they're in an imperial context. They have local magistrates, local rulers, but ultimately, the king of kings in the eyes of Rome is who? Caesar. So the highest law is an imperial law. And he's wanting them to bear in mind that when it comes to glory and splendor and majesty and all the, all, the, uh, all the wonders and prerogatives that come with it, it's Jesus Christ who is the Lord of glory. And that his law is not just local, local municipality ordinances. Scripture and the law of God revealed therein is royal law. And to break it then is to be found in rebellion. And then James describes a behavior. Partiality is how the ESV translates it. Some versions call it showing favoritism. The old King James refers to it as being a respecter of persons. And he describes in verse 3 a behavior. He throws out a, a hypothetical about a rich man coming in. And, and these are not people in the church. These are, these are people coming in to, 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 to visit a, a, a wealthy man and being shown deference. And a poor man coming in and being shown ambivalence or, or even disrespect. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that in this context, the, the first century, which the Roman Empire was highly, highly stratified, the social order was, was, was very stratified with clear behavioral expectations of, of what class you belonged to dictated how you ought, should be treated. Writing to the first century readers... He's describing a situation that was the norm for the day. This is how people were treated. This wasn't some scandal to a first century audience. You treat rich people well, poor people you could treat like trash, telling them to sit at your feet like a dog. And that was not seen as scandalous. There was no problem there. But there's a problem here. Why? Because it doesn't matter what culture you come out of. It doesn't matter what kingdom of earth you call home. Inside the church, we are a new humanity called out from the world, organized around Christ. We are, we are the kingdom. And local churches like ours are essentially outposts of the kingdom of heaven that has invaded the world. Without conjuring up notions of manifest destiny, the closest I can compare it to would be sort of like in the old wild west how they would have forts scattered here and there. And as Settlers were making their way through Indian country or whatever. These forts, Fort Laramie, Fort, I mean, so many of them, I can't even, my mind's going blank right now. 
and they're neat to go visit. But, but they were outposts of, of American civilization in, in a hostile territory. In similar fashion, the church, our churches, are to be outposts of the kingdom of heaven in whatever time and place and culture and civilization in which God sees fit to plant us. So in the case of Spring Cypress Presbyterian Church, the Lord has seen fit to put us here. I think 1982 is when this property was purchased. But since, since the early 80s, we've been here in Texas, northern Harris County. And you see who we are. But our ethic, our values are to be shaped primarily by Scripture, by the values of the kingdom of heaven, but we don't come into the church as blank slates. We've already learned values and priorities and a way of thinking, a way of living. And just like the readers here, we stand in need of recorrection as we find that values and priorities and ways of behaving that we learn from our culture may or may not be in alignment with values of the kingdom. And a kingdom value, that is, a kingdom value that is a high priority to the Lord and a low priority in the eyes of the world is the value of equality. In the kingdom, the rich, the poor, the great, the tiny, the big, the small, the haves, the have-nots, male, female, there's no one who's better. There's no one who's worse. We're just the family of God, and we're brothers, and we're sisters. The intelligent, the less intelligent, the socially awkward, the socially adept, we're all equal in the sight of the Lord. Distinctions of this sort are wrong. Now, some have used this passage to... To, to push in what I would call a radical egalitarianism. Show, make no distinctions, as if all distinctions are wrong. And, you know, hold on a second. Romans 13, 7 tells us to give honor to whom honor is due, respect to whom respect is due. And surely, you step outside and there are people whose innate positions are such that we are called to show them honor. The officials that govern us, I mean, we're called to pray for them. Um, you are called to honor your father. You're called to honor your elders. Okay? It, it's not saying the calling for the utter obliteration of, of, of all distinctions. And there's a way of treating people the same that, in fact, is dishonoring. I mean, for example, if we treated everybody the same walking through the door... And, and, and made no special provision for someone coming in uh, with a walker. Here, 
uh, you, know, we, you know, we don't care that, that you're in a wheelchair. You know, we're not going to move out of your way. We're not going to find you a place. You're not being great. You're, you're being dishonoring. Okay? So understand, when he talks about distinctions here, he's not going in some absurd, utterly absolute direction. No, what's he talking about? You know what he's talking about. He's talking about that petty, that petty uh, attempt to curry favor with someone who's a have in whatever sphere you're in. Here they're talking about a rich person, but maybe it's a highly educated person, or maybe it's a really famous person, or maybe it's a really attractive person, or, or maybe it's just a well-positioned person. I, I don't know. But he's referring to that petty attempt to curry favor or to impress or to be seen as aligning oneself with someone who you think can benefit you and showing ambivalence or disrespect to someone who you think is a have-not or someone who's not in a position to benefit you. One of the things I love about this church is that there's a good mix of educations and backgrounds and em employment types. And um, we have blue-collar people, white-collar people. We have, we have professionals. We have laborers. We, we, we have a good mix. And that's really cool. And we do a good job, I think, of, of not making any distinctions on, on socioeconomic patterns. In, in fact... Yeah, I think we've done a good job as a church uh, when I see who's nominated for office. You know, in some churches, quite frankly and sadly, in my opinion, it, it's almost like it's an unofficial criteria that the only people who can be officers are, are successful businessmen. And we, and we have a bunch of people from all sorts of walks of life, not just, not just corporate executives or lawyers or doctors. We have a bunch of... And so we're doing a great job in that regard, but, but here's where we got to do the gut check. There's more ways to be poor than just economic. Consider what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.17. This is, this is astounding. He says to the church, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. That's a church that's meeting its budget. Its budget is expanding. Its buildings and its programs. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable. Poor, blind, and naked. You see, we do a good job in this church at not making distinctions, I think, between levels of socioeconomic status. But how do we treat poverty when we see it as simply a deficit in something? Someone can be poor in personality. Maybe, I, I don't know how to 
frame it delicately, maybe someone's kind of dull. They're, 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 they're kind of socially awkward and they're not, they're not good conversationalists and they're just, it's kind of awkward to talk to them. It's kind of awkward to try to carry on a conversation with them. And, and, and that's a poverty of personality, you might say. And, and how do we treat them? Do we marginalize and ignore those people? And conversely, do we treat as rich those who, who are socially adept and are easy and fun and natural to talk to? Do we, do we gravitate towards them and, and, and want to invest in them because they might make us look good? Or they might give us a good time because they're just fun to be around. What about people who are poor in intellect? There are people who either just the way God made them, some people just aren't as mentally fast as others. I mean, my, my mom, she was a nice woman, but you had to tell her the same thing four or five times in four or five different ways for her to get it. And I will confess, it was, it was very frustrating for me. And I wasn't as patient as I should have been. Some people are just uneducated, and so their ideas seem dumb or, or, or ill-informed to us who have educations that we pride ourselves in. So when, when someone who's poor in mind comes into our midst, how do we treat them? Do we marginalize, ignore? What about those who are poor in body? Maybe they're infirm. Maybe they have a, a birth defect. Maybe they're all wrinkly. Maybe they're bald. I don't know. Maybe they're just ugly. I mean, come on. You know what I'm talking about. There are people who are just unattractive. I, I don't mean the way all you ladies think you're not pretty. You know, you all are beautiful. You know what I'm talking about. There are people who are just... It's not pleasant to look at them. How do we treat them, though? Do we treat them as lesser, as unimportant? Or do we gravitate towards beautiful people? Do we, in our church picture-taking and posting on the web, do we highlight the, the, the pretty people that are going to look good on the website? Do we, as, 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 as Wes kind of points out every now and then, do we, do we try to make it look like a college recruiting poster? You've got to show the, the requisite diversity. Are we trying to, trying to, trying to scratch, a, trying to make, check a checkbox? Or are we being authentic? What do we do? How are we doing it? Whatever it is, do the gut check. Do you show, do we show, partiality of, such, of this kind? And, and I would have you know, in doing uh, uh, that gut check, that last week you may recall that we said that true religion hinges on, he, he, he highlights three things that, that, that true religion depends upon or that, or that are true evidences of true religion. And this kind of partiality violates all three. First, we were told that true religion controls the tongue. But oftentimes with our tongue, 
with our verbal snubs, we wound and insult those whom we think are in the have-not category. Second, we're told that true religion helps the have-nots. And how in this James 1, 26 and 27, he uses the, the orphans and widows as the fill-in. That's a stand-in for the have-nots. And true religion goes out of its way to help the have-nots in their midst. But do you see how showing partiality where at best it's, it's ambivalent and at worst it's actually marginalizing, how that harms the have-nots? They get their whole, they spend their whole life being, uh, being kicked around and, and, and in the place where God has established a new humanity, that, that beatdown continues? That's wrong. And true religion, finally, we, we learned from 127, is unstained by the world. And yet there is nothing more patently worldly than social stratification. The haves and the have-nots will forever be distinguished between. So when we show partiality like this, it's, it's a violation of every principle of true faithful religion that he's just mentioned a couple verses before. Wow. And why should we not is it just arbitrarily given to us as a command? No, because God does not show partiality. In fact, if you want to go back to verse 1 when I said Jesus, the Lord of glory, there's a bit of irony there. Why? Because Jesus was rejected, despised. And the irony is that Jesus, the complete have-not, is in fact the ultimate have God himself is not a respecter of persons. I just, I just think the King James hits it on the head. There is no one who stands before God with some sort of earthly attainment that merits any special favor. I love in, I love in the book of Job, 34.19, Elihu. He's, he's this young guy who's been sitting there listening to this to, to, to this round and round between Job and his friends. And Elihu, is, he's the only character in the book with a Semitic name. But he's, he's kind of scolding or rebuking Job. He's kind of the, the front runner of the Lord because the Lord's speech comes right after. But Elihu reminds Job and us this. God shows no partiality to princes nor regards the rich more than the poor. Why not? For they are all the work of his hands. And then, in the New Testament, Peter goes to see Cornelius in Acts 10, 34. And you know the story of the conversion of, of, of Cornelius and how the Lord sends a, a vision to Peter about all the unclean food that he's told to eat. You know that whole story. So when he gets to Cornelius and he hears the whole deal, he says, truly I understand that God, knows, that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then Paul, in Romans 2, 9 to 11, he underscores the utter egalitarianism of the judgment and mercy of God. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Leviticus 19.15 expressly prohibits favoring either the rich or the poor in court cases. Leviticus 19.18 is where we get the Old Testament statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus reiterates in the New Testament as the second great commandment. And so when, when James points out that the Lord has chosen the poor in the world oftentimes, how dare you exclude them because it's precisely the poor that he's sought out. That's repeating what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says this, Consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Praise God for that letter M. It's not saying that the Lord doesn't call any powerful, wealthy, noble people. He's just saying many. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is why Jesus, the Lord of glory, and the irony of the turning of the tables, that he was rejected as a, as a crazy, blaspheming, rebel he's king of kings and lord of lords ruling governing all and so our ethic then in the church how we as christians live our lives ought to conform to the values of heaven that have not only remained ethereal values but have actually been manifest in positive commands in scripture which is why James tells us, if you show, in verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Period. There's not a period there. But, but, but period, you are committing sin. Okay, and what does he say? And you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. This is one of those times where conviction is, is, is in the... Uh, is in the absolute sense, the objective sense, where it doesn't matter how you feel. You may not feel guilty, but you've been declared guilty. And this is when he really turns the screws. In this third section, verses 8 to 13, 
were declared to be sinners, violators of the law. And if you break the law at one point, you're, you're guilty of it all. He's not saying that every sin is equal. That's a different argument. What he's trying to drive home is he's, all sins are ultimately violations and rebellions against the lawgiver. That is why the, the one who said this is also the one who said that. Why it's brought out that ultimately our offenses are against the person of God. And he wants to highlight the heinousness of it by in, instead of pulling out little picadillo sins that he could have, he goes straight for the, the scandalous ones. Adultery and murder. He wants you to realize that showing favoritism is on those same scandalous grounds because it's all a violation of the same God, the same lawgiver's will. And then he says something. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, what is he talking about? He's been talking about showing partiality. Showing partiality and making sinful divisions and distinctions is seen here, is stated here by the apostle's pastor as showing no mercy, as being unmerciful. Why? Because the same oppression that they've experienced in the world instead of finding relief here in the church we've put our thumb on it and pressed and we've continued and exacerbated because in the one place where they should find respite they're finding it continued that's unmerciful judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy that reminds me of something. It should remind us all of something. This, there's this little parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. It's probably got this header in your Bible, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And James, his comment here in verse 13 is basically the punchline of that parable. Go read that parable about a man who owes an impossible debt to a ruler and by all legal rights has, has no hope of anything. He's pardoned and immediately it says he goes out and he sees someone who owed him a, a debt that was infinitesimally small by comparison to the debt that he had owed. And he says he starts strangling the dude. Mercy mercy we want it are we willing to show it and so we're reminded here when it says mercy triumphs over judgment we are reminded of the fact that having just been convicted that we're sinners that we and we stumble in many ways that we have transgressed the law of a holy God that there is mercy for us because of Christ. In the same way that we've received, we should give. And those who come into our midst beat down and burdened by, by the ill treatment they receive should find mercy here. And so we see that the mercy the Lord wants us to extend is not just the mercy of 
extending forgiveness, but the mercy of extending his benevolent disposition, even as we have benefited from his benevolence. So, brothers and sisters, partiality is improper for the people of God. It's inconsistent with the ethics and the values of the kingdom of heaven. Will you? Will you willing, are you willing to relearn a new, a new way of being? Evaluate your heart. Evaluate your life. And if the shoe fits, then wear it. But if you're doing fine, then by all means, pray for those of us who need to work on it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness for your mercy. Lord, even as we have received your mercy and have benefited so significantly from it, grant that we would be vessels showing mercy to those who come through our doors, seeking the peace, seeking the, the refuge of your kingdom. Grant that they wouldn't come here and find, and find just more of the same. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sins to the cross. By your spirit, help us to live as befits your people. In your name we pray, O Lord. Amen.